As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome back to the Sustainability at Haas, a podcast looking at how the UC Berkeley Haas School of Business is shaping the next generation of sustainable business leaders. I'm Adriana. And I'm Olivia. And today we'll be talking to Professor David Rockley, who is the Executive Director of the Innovation, Creativity and Design Practice at Berkeley Haas. Also, uh, we'll have Professor Panos Paradotokos, Associate Professor in this episode, we're talking to two faculty members who are driving the effort to integrate sustainability and social impact topics into the curriculum at Haas through both the core curriculum and electives. Our first guest is Dave Rocklin, who teaches a new applied innovation elective at Haas called Designing Tech for Good, which was recently featured in Haas News. Welcome, Dave. Well, thank you. I'm very delighted to be here with you, too. Excellent. Well, let's get started. We would love if you could first start by telling us a little bit about your background. Sure, be happy to. So um, I guess you would call me a pracademic. Uh, I've been at Haas for 12 years, but I come to academia by way of business. I had a C-level uh, job in both tech and the NGO space. I like uh, like many electives at Haas, actually, uh, classes arise in response to student interest. So I have uh, degree, business degrees in both Haas, actually as an undergrad in Kellogg, and uh, I was a consultant and CPG marketer and then a tech executive. Um, so I've, you know, I've been sort of in larger companies, built, build, uh, some of the internet pioneers. Uh, I also, uh, ran a, a fair trade NGO and also currently run an NGO that focuses on climate and forest funds. What an interesting story. So we want to hear maybe a little bit more about uh, you, you recently launched a new class, right? Yeah, it's the Designing Tech for Good initiatives. Uh, very exciting to very exciting new class, uh, really successful inaugural edition last fall and uh, very delighted to be doing it again this year. Oh, that's pretty exciting. So what, like, why do you decided to launch this class? Like, do you find a specific admit need that uh, made you trigger the proposal of this class? You know, so sort of put it back on the fact that Haas students were becoming more interested in the responsible side of tech. Um, the more I saw of that, the more I thought there was a need to put that into place here at Haas. In this case, or um, a couple of trends at play. I'm going to go on for a while here, if you don't mind. It's going to be a little bit of a monologue, but Haas was really a trendsetter when they when they uh, first launched the Center for Responsible Business, CRB, 20 years ago. At that time, you know, the impact of sourcing and supply chains on the world, you know, was a kind of a new concept. I remember back, you know, for example, in 2007, when I was uh, working at the uh, Fair Trade NGO, we went to visit Walmart. Very interesting type of Walmart. There was something called the Walmart effect that had uh, sort of been recognized in the early 2000s, which is they were so large that if they made a decision on packaging or carrying a certain product, they actually had a, an external impact that was, you know, noticeable in the world. I think at one time they were something like 10% of the trade deficit with China, for example. And so um, somewhere in the mid 2000s, you, know, uh, you know, middle of the first decade, they recognized, wow, we need to think more about that impact. And so, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in Arkansas with a lot of other NGO uh, heads working with them, trying to understand how do you account for and, and improve the impact of your supply chain. Walmart has gotten quite good at that in the last 15 years. But at the time, it was, you know, sort of a new thing that the size of their impact was quite large and their ability to manage it was, I would say, somewhat minimal. If you think of where we are with tech now, 
you know, 15 years ahead, it's sort of the same thing as happened in tech, right? So all of a sudden you've had firms that they now need to consider the impact of the decisions they make much more than they used to. You know, think of something like Slack, for example, right? A new app like Slack arises and all of a sudden it changes the way we all work. You know, sometimes uh, you have to think about how to have conversations in a way that you didn't before. And, you know, of course, a company like Facebook, for example, I mean, where do you start, right, with their issues? Their products have a direct impact on, you know, depression in young people. They have significant issues around privacy. Um, there's a lot to think about in terms of the use of AI, their role in amplifying hate. And, you know, of course, in their case, they've almost consistently got it wrong. But in other cases, tech can have a major positive impact in solving social problems. We worked with Autodesk in the class last year. And, you know, for example, they're, they're like embedding sustainability tools into their design suite. And as a result, you know, when someone is doing building design, they can now consider how their architectural and design choices impact the energy consumption or other issues around that building. And so, you know, that's a case where, you know, they're considering their, the, the impact of their tech in a very positive way. So, you know, with that, that sort of, uh, again, as was the case with sort of uh, sustainable supply chains 15 years ago, sort of responsible tech is something that needs a lot more attention. And I think uh, Hof students have certainly recognized it. The uh, folks in the class last year, I think, were really excited about trying to understand how to uh, make sense of all of that. Oh, wow. That was very impressive. And so I'm curious to know a little bit more about how is the class structure? Do you work directly with the specific companies like Autodesk? Are there more than one company that you work with? And like, what do you cover in lecture and what do, project, do the projects give to the students in terms of like critical skills and tools? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's sort of the, the um, it's interesting when you talk about responsible business and impact, the skills and tools are actually quite distinct. So you can't just really always, you, you'd like to borrow more from the normal management tool set, but there are some things that are very different. We spent about half the semester sort of introducing key concepts. I mean, we do that in a variety of ways through cases, guest speakers, some lecture, a lot of discussion, you know, sort of a flipped classroom, right? And, you know, so we have to talk about everything from, you know, uh, platform strategies because that's what drives how large uh, tech firms in particular make decisions to, you know, the role of uh, corporate social responsibility, but not just CSR on its own, but how CSR intertwines with uh, strategic alignment. And so we have to spend time saying, it's not what you want to do, it's what you do that actually supports the mission, right? Those are things on the tech side. And then on the social impact side, things like root cause analysis, theory of change, human-centered design, as it applies to uh, solving social problems are all things you need to consider. We sort of put all that in, in a, a very rapid and fun way in the first half, which is maybe seven weeks. And then we switch to live client work. We typically work with folks that are working in the, the for good or social impact side of large tech firms. And they will give us uh, a challenge to either, you know, sort of consider or validate for them. As I mentioned, you know, we were with Autodesk a little bit on how do they measure the impact of embedding sustainable design tools, right? Uh, with uh, Electronic Arts EA, we worked on positive play. How do they actually create positive social interactions in gaming? And then, uh, you know, for example, with Dell, we were working with their research group that reports to the CIO on what some of their more advanced technologies could do to solve civic engagement issues. Those are some great examples of ways that your class takes theory and, and puts it into practice. I think one of the things that you said a moment ago really hit the nail on the head in terms of the almost love-hate relationship that Haas students have with tech, similar to Walmart and, and retailers in the 90s, tech kind of has a bad rap these days. And 
At the same time, it can be a really great place to launch your career to new heights, to gain valuable skills. I hear a lot of my peers and classmates at Haas grappling with this tension. Tech is also one of the top employers of Haas graduates. What advice do you give to students who are interested in pursuing a career in tech but are worried about selling out, uh, you know, almost in a more philosophical sense? What advice do you give? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, tech can have both a very positive. I mean, it's like any large firm, right? You know, not to harp on Walmart, but you could argue with Walmart, you're either, you know, having a massive impact or with Amazon or you're selling out. I mean, that the larger firms, part of the excitement of going in large firms is the kind of impact you can have, right? Part of the reason you get an MBA is to live big in the world and you live big by running big. And so having a chance to um, work in a, you know, large tech is an opportunity to, to make decisions and, and implement things that affect millions of people. You know, I think you do have to consider though, how that, you know, sort of fits with your own set of values. Every firm has different values. And the thing that probably, you know, I'd like to say, okay, it's just about culture, right? But, you know, and culture is a huge part of it. But I think one of the things you need to do is understand the essence of how a firm competes. For example, I just, uh, for the class actually, I just finished a Haas, uh, Berkeley Haas case on Hope Lab. Hope Lab is a uh, sort of a social enterprise. It's funded by uh, the Omidyar Foundation, and it's all about mental health for youth. They developed a, an app for college students, basically to address loneliness. You wouldn't think loneliness matters to college students, right? You're surrounded by, you know, your next, your, your thousand best friends. But in, in fact, expectations are often not met in college environments, and so they wanted to develop an app that would they would, you know, sort of coach college students on making lasting friendships in college. Uh, really an important thing. So again, as a social enterprise, their key metric is teen mental health, right? And so everything they built into the, the app is focused completely on, are they hitting that metric? And if you think about, you know, a, a traditional social media company, they're competing on clicks or engagement or something else, right? And so you have to feel comfortable with that, like you can't go work at, again, like a company like Facebook, if you're not comfortable with wanting to increase engagement and have people spend more time in the app or TikTok or any of, of, of the social media, but uh, for that matter. So you have to sort of just think about that and how you feel about those types of things. Those things are at the core of competition, right? Everybody has got DE&I initiatives right now. Everybody's doing for good. All of the companies want to prove that their tools do good things in the world and that they, you know, they want to build positive cultures. But they do compete in certain ways. And so, you know, even one of my favorite companies and certainly one of the top Haas employers that we've worked with a lot in, in my uh, Haas at Work project class is Adobe. But, you know, I went to Adobe Max uh, virtually this year and a lot of the engineers are working on like sets of tools that, you know, sort of automatically change reality. So, you know, you don't like their maybe inconveniently your ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend, ex significant others in a photo, click a button and that person's gone. A bird's going across the screen, click a, click a button, right? There's a ship in the background in the ocean. A, a lot of these things alter the nature of what's real. It's pretty cool from a, uh, you know, from a visual point of view, but at the same time, you have to ask, well, am I comfortable with, does that have any impact that I'm concerned about personally? And if so, how, you know, how is the company addressing that? The idea of personal truths and altered reality are becoming significant issues in tech. And so, you know, you have to sort of, depending on what part of Adobe you're working, you have to come with grips with that, right? Or again, you know, uh, with Adobe and their marketing suite, the, you know, surveillance marketing is a real thing right now, right? I mean, you go visit a site to look at, you know, a hat and that 
the amount of information that's known about you by virtue of you stopping in on that webpage is massive. And that information gets used. You have to decide if you're comfortable with that as a uh, business technique or not. And so those things, you know, again, those things are probably not changeable. So definitely focus on the things you can change, but also, you know, understand the things you can't change. And that has to determine what sort of tech you decide is the right for you. Thanks, Dave. I think, you know, one quick follow-up to that question. There was something that you said when we did our sort of preview call. You said, you know, something about when you're a Haas student, when you're when you're an MBA student evaluating potential future employers to think about where they are now, recognize that in the current state, there may be some dissonance in terms of your values and what the company is willing to do, but also to think about where they could be 10 years from now and whether you could be part of that journey, a part of that process in driving the ball forward. Do you mind sort of speaking to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. I, I Particularly in my uh, sustainability and social responsibility classes with undergrads, I talk a lot about this because they're they're earlier in their careers and, and highly ideological at Berkeley. As you probably noticed if you pass them in the hallways, and shoot, right? So, you know, there's always going to be a values gap between you and a company, right? It's not going to be that your values are not as great as their values because they're going to do what they can to screen you out. If they don't feel like you match their values, they're going to have a hard time hiring you. On the other hand, if you look at the other type of error, right, your values will probably, if it's not the other way around, your values will probably exceed the values of the company in some way. Again, it could be, you know, some of the issues we just, we talked about previously, or it could be, you know, something completely different around their uh, approach to employee health or DEI or whatever that thing is. So, you know, if you're looking for the perfect match, that's a really tough thing to do. So you, I think you need to think more about, again, you're going to have, you, you're, I, I would hope your desires to have an impact when you go work inside a tech company or another company. So I think the real key is to look at where they're heading and, and th that occurs in many ways. Like, you know, there are many firms that are making, you know, net zero commitments, but they're 10 year commitments and you don't know if they're going to get there or not. Many firms that are making commitments around the positive use of their tech or um, doing better. If you believe that that journey gets to where you feel good about the company and you can help take the company on that journey, what better way to spend your time, right? Instead of being sort of unforgiving at the sort of what you see as the shortfalls of particular companies, I think it, it's worth taking a little time to understand what they're trying to do and where they're trying to go. And then, you know, think about your ability to be a change agent. You know, again, because of the size of these companies and their impact, the kind of impact you can have by doing that is really quite substantial. It was very interesting to hear about the work that you're doing with the Hirathas and Adobe and the surveillance market to me. So a lot of companies are doing like innovation and setting up uh, the scene for like new methods of doing X, Y, or Z, right? But there is also a role of public policy and, uh, and how like the top-down approach, like how policy really drives uh, how, how to incorporate change, right? And we also know that this class is uh, provided also like the opportunity for big, uh, the Goldman School of Public Policy students to, to be part of it. So I'm curious to hear like how, how do you see the transformation between business leaders, policy drivers, uh, and all into one class and one space? Right. That's a great question. I, I, I have to start by saying, I mean, that's, a, you know, one of the great things about Berkeley, if I can say so humbly on behalf of the university, is we're good at almost everything, <laughs> right? And so it's interesting, I think, when folks make their decisions about business goals, 
they look at the business goals, but they don't look holistically at what the entire you know campus has to offer. You know, we're obviously in the top ten as an across all our MBA programs. But if you aggregate all the things that Berkeley does, we're by far as an aggregate score number one. So getting a chance to bring students from something like the Goldman School of Public Policy in is a really a rare, lucky thing for us to do. Goldman is a number one, right? Public policy school in the country. You know, there's real benefit to working cross program like that. And, you know, we built that into the fabric of the course immediately. It's interesting. Their perspective is quite different. <laughs> and so um, it was uh, incredibly valuable having them in because um, they have a different way of thinking about impact, right, than Haas students do. So I, I, to the more, you know, sort of detailed part of your question, I mean, it, look, you know, for CSR to work inside companies, you know, they're, they're responsibility platforms. There are really only three drivers that, that make it sustainable and um, long-lived. The first is you're doing things for risk avoidance, you know, and so a lot of climate uh, activities in that bucket right now, it's like, well, we got to do it because if we don't, then maybe we're going to be dropped from ESG funds. Maybe there's going to be some uh, accounting risk issues associated with it. Quite a few do it for rewards. If we do this, our customers and employees will love us. And therefore, um, it's worth investing in certain responsibility or sustainability platforms to do that. But the third is simply regulatory avoidance. And it's a huge thing. If you look at surveys year after year, I, I, I show this data in several of my classes, they ask CEOs, what's your number one concern for your business? And every year, number one and number two on that list consistently is regulation. <laughs> every CEO on the planet believes that overregulation is the thing that's the biggest threat to their business. And so, you know, understanding the regulatory piece and particularly regulatory avoidance is really important. You know, startups often ignore it, right? I mean, they, their risk profiles are different. And so, you know, if you're Uber, you say, well, we're not a taxi company. If you're PayPal, you're not a bank, right? If you're Airbnb, well, we're not a hotel. And so you just sort of annoy that. But, you know, sooner or later, you have to grapple with it, right? Regulation comes for you. You know, there, there are plenty of approaches to consider. I mean, some of it is straight out lobbying. Um, there's been several articles lately about the lobbying efforts of big tech, actually. One really large, very prominent strategy used is called pre-competitive collaboration. And what that means is like, you know, okay, if this is going to be a risk, we don't want to compete on it, but we don't want anyone else to compete on it. The best thing you can do is get everyone to agree, let's not do this anymore. You know, someone really obvious, like, you know, the cocoa industry, let's get slave labor out of cocoa. Okay, that means we all have to agree that we're going to source certain ways and nobody's going to cheat because maybe they can get it cheaper if they do, right? And so, you know, thinking about effective pre-competitive collaboration, how do you build industry initiatives that um, accomplish what, you know, is normally a function of government is huge. And so as far as the, you know, sort of the public policy piece, companies now are playing a central role in establishing public policy through these types of entities. So I'll go to the World Business Council and say, okay, we all agree that the way we're doing uh, privacy is not good. And so will you help us facilitate a new way of doing privacy standards that makes it so that we can be effective? We don't get into trouble with government. And, you know, we're doing hopefully better than we've done. But, you know, we don't want to do it on our own because we're just going to lose if we do that. And so, you know, managing that uh, element of public policy is um, really a key. And again, you know, having Goldman folks and they think about public policy in a different way. And so that's really helped. But we do talk about it a lot, this idea of pre-competitive work and what it means to get industry initiatives as opposed to individual initiatives going. Wow, that's super intriguing. So is this pre-competitive collaboration driving towards like the systems thinking and how to incorporate that system view into innovation? It's an interesting question. I, I think the, uh, if, if it's done well, that would be the case, right? So, you know, systems thinking is quite complicated, right? 
the example I always use for system thinking is a, there's a fishing village in Mexico where you know, there's another job. And so they keep fishing. And as they, you know, fish, the waters are getting overfished. And as they get waters get overfished, they have to do more fishing. To solve that problem, you don't just like slap a ban on fishing, right? You have to think about creating other economic activity or people are just going to go around it. So typically with systems thinking, the root cause analysis, which is one of the things we focus a lot on in the tech for good class is really important. Like it's not the thing you think, it's the, you know, something else that's hidden. And I, I think the struggle for pre-competitive collaboration is that companies don't necessarily get as much credit for that, right? So, you know, again, you know, with the, the issue of forced labor and, and supply chains and cocoa, the issue is specifically lack of other options and lack of, you know, like, like it's easy to say, well, we should send those kids to school. There's no school, right? Creating solutions sometimes is not obvious. So in some ways, systems thinking can help because firms, if they're not going it alone, can do a better job of that. On the other hand, um, I think they're aware of wanting to do more visible things. And so sometimes some of the most important root causes don't get covered. So that's one of the things, sort of that, that interplay between root cause analysis and corporate social responsibility alignment is something we talk about a lot in the class. It's like, okay, what are the things that are broken? Which ones make sense for our company to deal with? And it's, it's a hard, difficult and frustrating because you know you're leaving things on the table. I mean, there's plenty of data like, you know, they're, they're, I mean, it's very circular whether companies that do good CSR work outperform or because our companies outperform, they get to do good CSR work, right? That's, that's the eternal debate that goes on. But I have plenty of data that shows you that if you're a CEO and you are, have a strong CSR platform and your firm underperforms, you're almost certainly getting fired. The CEO of Dannon is a perfect example. You know, they, Dannon is a water and dairy company. From, from my point of view, I'm like, why are they even trying? It's kind of hopeless. If you're in the bottled water and the dairy business, you know, it's really hard to argue about your environmental impact. But, you know, he was uh, determined to turn them into a model of social responsibility. He was moving along just fine until they started to underperform their competitors and then he was gone. And so, you know, you have to choose to do things that um, have, you know, impact against certain root causes but also are things that help the firm compete, or at least are in the, in the you know, wheelhouse of the firm. Thanks, Dave. So just as we sort of wrap up here, I'm going to take a little bit of a different tack with this next question. Thinking big picture, what are the three main takeaways that you hope Haas students have from your course? It could be, you know, a, a new or different perspective, you know, a key learning from, from class. I mean, you've, we, we've, we've talked about a lot of them, I guess, what, you know, what are, what's the sort of maybe pithy one, two, and if you've got it, three takeaways. So the first is uh, really uh, to have uh, focusing holistically about tech and the impact as we've talked about throughout the, this morning to really consider not just what they're building, but the secondary impacts of that. The second is something that, you know, sort of flows throughout all of my teaching, which is how to be more creative around problem solving. And so, you know, we do have some design thinking uh, built into the course and some systems thinking. And so suspending the idea that you can solve the problem right away and, and thinking much more creatively about possibilities is something that we definitely put into the course and, and make sure the projects uh, uh, consider. And then the, the third thing is this uh, concept of uh, figuring out where the best place for impact for a particular company is, right? You have to develop, you know, programs that are both competitively enhancing and positive for the world. And so finding, you know, sort of assessing different uh, levers to pull and figuring out which ones are the best for the company to pull on so they can keep doing it. If someone doesn't come and cut that budget two years from now is super key. 
right? You want to put things in place that are um, sustainable and permanent. And so thinking about how to do that means your effect will be much more lasting as a, a, a tech executive. Great. Thanks, Dave. I think your last point about thinking holistically about impact is so, so important. I think even as someone who's nearly completed a, a two-year MBA program, that's one of my main takeaways from this experience overall is that the tools of business only get us so far. And it's really crucial to to, to also be thinking about stakeholders in, in the policy realm, the nonprofit sector, as we try to tackle these major challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of my colleagues, uh, Tom Lee, uh, we had a conversation a while ago about um, machine learning and algorithmic decision-making. And, you know, he pointed out, like, look, even with machine learning, the objective is set by a human. It's not set by the machine, right? And so there's a human element uh, of impact to all of these things. Before we turn technology loose on optimization, we need to think hard about the impact of what we're asking that algorithmic decision-making to do. It's a perfect example of that. Yeah, that's a great example. So last question. Tell us a little bit about what's next. Do you have other ideas on the horizon for how Haas can better integrate sustainability and social impact into the student experience? You know, other ideas up your sleeve for for this class or others? Haas is obviously leaning very heavily into sustainability now. You know, we have a certificate program, and even in our normal core classes and other electives, um, there's a there's been a strong interest in making sure that we're including sustainability as part of the uh, conversation, right? And so I, I think you're going to see it opportunities in many places within Haas to continue to, you know, integrate that in your thinking and your work, whether, you know, it's, you're going to be in finance or marketing or tech or whatever. Yeah, for me personally, I have a couple of things I'm really interested in that I, um, we'll see how they, how they develop into the curriculum. But one is, you know, this concept of um, what the UN calls slow onset disasters. We live in a short attention span world, right? And so, you know, things like climate change, for example, or PFAS pollution, these things happen slowly. And so one of the challenges, you know, is, you know, hourly or, or daily or weekly information cycle, how do you get attention significant, you know, substantially put against these slower, longer burn onset issues like climate change, right? And not just climate change, there's many others as well. And so that's something I'm, I'm doing some doctorate work in actually, so I'm very interested in. And then as I mentioned this post-humanism, post-digital piece, I think we talk about digital literacy in a different way than we talk about literacy. Interestingly enough, right? When we talk about literacy, if you say someone is literate, you think that they can read, right? But it also means to write. When you think of digital literacy, you think it's their ability to code or to create, right? But digital literacy is, is also a form of consuming. And so digital literacy around how we consume technology is something that I think is incredibly underweighted. And so, you know, we don't, uh, you know, teach kids how to interact with TikTok. We don't for ourselves consider when to hit the send button or, or to respond to something we've seen on email without understanding the intent of it. It's all sorts of areas. I think that's something that we really need to reconsider is, you know, again, how was our relationship with tech? Okay, so now we will transition to a conversation with Professor Panos Patatokas to hear more about how fundamental MBA classes like finance and accounting can transform the mindsets of future leaders like us. Panos is an associate professor at Haas and Distinguished Teaching Fellow. So Panos, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. 
Panos, we would love to just hear a little bit more about your background. Uh, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I've been at house for the last um, 10, 11 years. Uh, I've lost track, but I've been around for a while. And um, over the last several years, I've been very active in the EWMB program, teaching financial information analysis. Uh, every year we have two sections, two full sections of students who are interested in learning more about financial information analysis and how to use financial data to make more informed decisions. And that's primarily what I do for my teaching. And then in terms of research, I've been active in uh, empirical capital markets research. And really the question is how we can use financial and alternative data uh, to understand how prices are being formed, how uh, the stock market is processing information. One of the things connecting my research and teaching is my keen interest in understanding how we can use uh, data and education to promote individual investor protection. I believe in financial education, the power of financial education, and I'm thinking of ways that we can uh, provide easier access to everyone to the power of data and education. Thank you so much, Panos. It is really exciting taking your class this semester for me. It has been really exciting to hear like how you care about the individual investors so much. So thank you so much for this brief introduction. So I was going to ask you, what is your vision? How do you envision mobilizing change within the department and within accounting and finance? I think in terms of our discipline, accounting and finance, uh, our research, I think, can have real impact and real implications and uh, across many decision makers, uh, from regulators to policymakers to institutional investors to individual investors. And through our research and teaching, we're trying to close the gap between practitioners, regulators, and of course, academics. One of the things that I've been doing um, during my time at Haas is working with Michelle Denevers, who's the executive director of sustainability on understanding opportunities to integrate sustainability into the core curriculum. And accounting has actually been one of the disciplines where we see the most are already sort of going on. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about what accounting at Haas is, is already doing on this front. How do you think about sustainability and, and how it integrates into the accounting curriculum? So as a matter of fact, earlier today, I had a meeting with Michelle, uh, talking exactly about those issues. I was almost running late for this podcast because of my meeting with Michelle, so I'll blame her. <laughs> I think accounting and finance, uh, we have uh, so much to offer to, to this debate um, and, and inform um, uh, issues around sustainability, the integration of sustainability. The way I think about sustainability, actually, the, the, I'm thinking about sustainability through the lenses of ESG. So I'm just going to focus on the ESG component because I'm thinking about measurement of, uh, 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 along the dimension of the environment, the social component, the governance component. So the four things that, are, that come to mind that immediately our discipline can contribute relate to measurement. How do we measure, you know, ESG activities? Uh, and of course, you know, some dimensions are easier to measure than others, right? Uh, some dimensions are more verifiable than others. For some dimensions, we have more data and better data uh, than others. So there's a measurement component and then there's a disclosure component. So how do we actually disclose the things that we measure? And when we disclose this information, when we disclose information about the companies, environmental, social, and governance activities, how do people actually process this information, right? How do they use the data? How do they use the information? Uh, and how do ultimately those disclosures 
have an impact in, in real decision-making. The third um, topic related to the measurement and disclosure is, of course, the issue of standardization. How do we provide information in ways that allow for comparisons for the same firm over time, but also across different firms in the same sector, right? Because I think it's really important. I think it's one of the key issues now uh, with the SEC policy proposal with respect to the standardization, the, you know, mandating this climate-related disclosures to have a common baseline for corporations and investors in terms of disclosure. So standardization is related to measurement and disclosure. Standardization, I think, is also the epicenter of the debates that are happening right now as we speak. And I think the last piece relates to uh, investments. So how do investors, both institutional investors from uh, index fund managers to pension funds, right, to catch funds uh, from passive all the way to active investors, but also individual investors use, uh, you know, reports about sustainability activities, ESG issues in their decision-making, right? So I'm thinking about disclosure, I'm thinking about measurement, standardization, and of course, the, the investment component. And then with respect to the last one, it's especially important because the way we measure things can have real implications, right? To the extent that an ESG scoring system, for example, is mismeasuring what it's supposed to be measuring, that can really have unintended consequences in terms of separating more from less responsible companies and the way capital flows in society. Now, going back to your question, I think, you know, uh, our discipline can contribute to all four of these dimensions. And I think this, this is reinforced by the fact that only a few weeks ago, uh, the SEC came up with this policy proposal uh, for, uh, with respect to climate-related disclosure. So these are, you know, uh, accounting issues. These are disclosure issues. And we're going to have more to say over time. Yeah, finance, it was like really interesting to hear from you about uh, these four components, measures, close, standardize, and, and how to invest properly. And I'm curious to know, where do you see like the U.S. Uh, market going right now or like the impact of the of what already has happened in the European markets as a like uh, how do those two worlds compare? Like, do you see more of an inclination for disclosure? in the same, in a similar way, or does it differ significantly? I don't want to make predictions, but, you know, the trend that I see is more of, you know, more convergence as opposed to divergence in the way we think across the globe. And I think that's driven by investors. I think the investor base is globalized and, and, and investors demand, I think, more clarity in terms of the way companies are reporting their activities and in terms of the ways they form portfolios and they make decisions. So I think, you know, if I had to guess, and it's not a wild guess, I think I see more tendency towards convergence as opposed to divergence. And, and, I, and I think that institutional investors have, uh, you know, are playing a big role in terms of accelerating the convergence process. Yeah, just to chime in there, I think those four areas, measurement, disclosure, standardization, and investments, really speaks to the centrality of accounting just in our financial and economic systems. And I think is a, a good segue to one of the next things we wanted to ask you about. Adriana and I were listening to a talk recently from, it was organized by the Yale Center for Business and the Environment. 
And one of the contributors quoted Peter Bacher, who's the CEO of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. And he said, to save the world, we need two groups of people, in particular, accountants and business school professors. So, you know, I'm just curious, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Can accountants save the world? I think science is going to save the world. And I think, you know, uh, at best, you know, accountants and business school professors, you know, perhaps, you know, they can facilitate a little bit the flow of capital towards better ideas and innovation that may save the world. And I think at the end of the day, it's going to be uh, a scientist that come up with incredible new technologies that will mitigate the existential risk that we might be facing now. So I don't want to overstate the role that we might be playing, both as a, you know, as a accounting profession and as business school education. I think at best, what we can do is facilitate measurement disclosure so that eventually capital is allocated in a more efficient way in ideas that are more likely to lead to, you know, social welfare improvements so that everybody's better off and some of the existential issues uh, are being addressed. But, but that's really my personal view, right? If I can find ways to make it easier for great people to get finance and execute their vision uh, and come up with great technology, I think that will be a success for me, right? But it's going to be really the question is how do we get this incredible people to innovate? And, and I think that's really the role of, of measurement. Yeah, I I tend to agree, even though a lot of my time at Haas has been focused on working with Michelle and pushing for greater sustainability in the core curriculum. I also think that in addition to business school professors and accountants, you know, we can't understate the important role of policy as well. And I think, you know, you you spoke to the importance of of science and that's a critical component too. Investing in science and investing in new technologies, right? And another thing I want to point out, because, you know, I have many students and not everybody is affiliated with, uh, you know, technology. I mean, we have many people in technology, obviously, but I do have students, you know, in, in you know, you know uh, sectors that are not considered as green as others. So, for example, we have several students, you know, in the oil and gas sector and energy sector. Uh, and I've known, and I know them, and they're great students. And, Many of them are actually, you know, uh, scientists and, and they're engaging in kind of innovative projects. And what I see and what I hear is that, you know, a lot of innovation might be coming from clay places that, you know, might not be as obvious to us, right? So, for example, you know, I was talking to some of our students, you know, affiliated with, you know, Chevron. And I learned about kind of the kind of projects they're pursuing right now and the investments they're making. And, and what's interesting about some of these companies and some of the sectors, you know, they might be very poorly rated by rating agencies in terms of, you know, their ASD score, but still they might be investing heavily in innovation, perhaps not as much as many of us would like, right? But still, you know, they're taking active steps in terms of making real investments in technologies that perhaps if they ban out might change the world for the better. Now. And I know that because I know our students, right? So, uh, and I believe in our students and their capabilities. So it, it was interesting to me to sort of see that innovation might be coming from places that we might be actu actually divesting right now or not investing as much. And that's why I think, you know, it's in every sector, there will be leaders. And in every sector, uh, there will be great people and great innovators 
And of course, you know, in every sector, there will be companies that are lagging behind, companies that are not able to attract and retain incredible people. And so the question is, how do we compensate, reward uh, winners <laughs> so that they continue to innovate? And how do we penalize, you know, the losers, right? So those, those who are falling behind, so that capital is allocated in more efficient ways. Yeah, so going back to the, the broader theme is of who's going to save the world, I think it's going to be science. And at best, you know, what we can do is kind of create an ecosystem that is more likely to uh, encourage people to be entrepreneurial, you know, take action, execute their vision, and come up with new idea, ideas and technologies. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Yeah, as an engineer myself and a lover of uh, yeah, sustainability, I love this point because I really see like that connection of like not thinking only about what the capital markets, what they can do and accounting in order to flow the, the, make the flow of money, but make it actionable. So like we can count, but we can have to make the action happen in order to save the world, right? So on that segue, like what do you see are the keys to transforming accounting to help the flow of, of capital go into like innovation or other specific sectors? To me, measurement is, is a big issue. Uh, so, for example, if we look at the rating agencies, those that are some of the primary data vendors of ESG scores, right? The question is, what do the scores actually capture? And, and I think that's an important question because, you know, when it comes to ESG scoring methodologies, many of these models and many of these data sources, ratings, have become the basis for portfolio strategies and indices. And many of these indices have become the basis for financial products, such as exchange-traded funds, ETFs, that are tracking those ESG-based indices, right? So to the extent that this, some of these ESG ratings may not capture what they're supposed to be capturing, and to the extent that they're not perfect in terms of separating more from less responsible companies, well, the question then becomes whether, you know, the, the, the financial products that are based on this course actually provide effective means for investors to invest with their values, right? So, so how we measure things can actually have real implications, right? They can have real implications to the extent that, you know, and actually, you know, one mechanism through which can have real implications is that a lot of money is benchmarked to funds based, to indices based on is this course, so to the extent that these scores are measured with error, and this error is systematic, that can lead to systematic um, uh, distortions in the way capital flows. And ultimately, you know, we want investors to have easy access at a low cost to portfolios and products that allow them to invest truly with their values, right? So that capital flows towards ideas that align with the values of the investors. Yeah, I remember during class that you mentioned that uh, like we, we're investing even if we're not actively investing, right? So like having, putting our money into like our 401ks or anything, that money is being invested actively into other sources. So uh, yeah, it really opened my eyes in terms of like, okay, if I invest, put my money into my 401k, then that money gets flown and uh, maybe someone else is making the decisions to my values. So like, how do I really drive that decision-making from a different perspective and, and democratize it in a different way is very critical. Kind of a related point, Adriana, is that, um, you know, when it comes to, for example, your pension fund allocations, right? So I think, you know, 
We need to have more transparency and standardization in terms of the way some of these pension funds and what you get access to as an employee, perhaps. What's the ESG footprint of your portfolio and what are the characteristics? And of course, you know, try to measure all of that in a proper way. So I feel like, you know, measurement is a key issue. How do we measure sustainability, environmental, social activities at the firm level, but also at the portfolio level? And I think, you know, even in class, right, we saw that, you know, what could actually use, you know, a simple vector of fundamental characteristics, kind of a simple fundamental screen to reconstruct a portfolio that has a similar ESG score to, you know, an ESG-based index. And that's eye-opening to many, many of our students because they say, oh, wow, look at that, right? So I can actually build a very simple screen at a very low cost that effectively replicates the ESG profile of an index that may be marketed as an ESG-based index, but kind of captures some of the, you know, fundamental accounting variables, uh, uh, but, you know, transformed through the lenses of an ESG score that may or may not be separating firms based on whether or not they're more or less responsible. Um, so in, in a world where we see a lot of indexing happening and a lot of money benchmarked on indices, really the way we measure things at the firm level can propagate up to the market level very, very quickly. So switching gears a little bit, uh, in your research, you are integrating different methods and recommendations for the business community to start thinking about stakeholder capitalism, not just as a general idea, but as more of an integrated business practice. So can you tell us a little bit more about your research findings and recommendations, and then also speak to how you might bring those findings into the classroom? So my most recent work, actually the one that uh, we presented in class with Andriana last week, right? Uh, it relates really to ESG scoring methodologies and portfolio construction. And the idea over there was that from the point of view of individual investors, we need better measures and we need more transparency across index fund providers uh, so that people really get access to low-cost portfolios so that they invest with their values. So when it comes to stakeholder value creation, the way I've been thinking about stakeholder value creation is, again, through the lenses of financial information analysis, which is my class, I'm thinking about kind of the, the return on capital, but from the point of view of stakeholders relative to the opportunity cost of capitals of stakeholders. So one way I've been thinking about this, you know, the, the idea of moving from shareholder value creation to stakeholder value creation is to internalize some of the costs related to the activities of the firm that are impacting uh, the stakeholders. In class, you know, we try to use carbon emission data, for example, and try to estimate what would be the cost of offsetting those and to what extent we can use those estimates to restate the numbers and get a better sense of value creation from the point of view of stakeholders. I, I think one one thing that I realized through my research and my class is that the transition from shareholders to stakeholders is kind of broadening the scope to bring in more groups of uh, decision makers, right? A kind of traditional finance can be expanding in a straightforward way to incorporate these different perspectives. Uh, and in our class, we try to do it this semester. It's interesting because Olivia, one of the one of the constraints in terms of actually changing shifting perspectives from shareholders to stakeholders is access to data, data that can give us kind of more information about the different perspectives and the different points of view. 
And I think when it comes to the recent SSA proposal mandating, it's still a proposal to the extent that it will go through in a few months from now. And the expectation is that it will go through. I don't know whether in its pure original form or with after some amendments, but if it were to go through, uh, one of the things that we're going to get is access to more data, right? And, and, and that can actually change uh, the way we uh, measure things and the way we think about stakeholder value creation. Yeah, that's fascinating. Like how you can, you can create action through like the numbers and, and really make it happen, make a transition of capital money into like other ways, other spaces. So Professor, do you have any like interesting or like out there opportunities for new students or like prospective students to start learning more about this ESG? Like anything that comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, you know, if we have any prospective students, I would love to have them in class. And we had a few over the last couple of weeks. But on top of that, I want to mention that on June 1st, uh, we're organizing a conference. So the title of the conference is ESG Accounting, the Present and Future of Environmental, Social and Governance Disclosures. Uh, so it's happening on June 1st at the Speaker Forum. Uh, and we're putting together kind of um, uh, four panels organized around the issues of disclosure, well, measurement, disclosure, standardization, and investing. Uh, and we have a, you know, a great lineup of panelists and moderators, uh, many of the uh, big four, uh, well, actually I would say the big N, because we might uh, have a few others represented with many of the big N uh, accounting firms will be there together with our clients. We're going to have uh, uh, an SEC commissioner to talk about the role of the SEC in terms of mandating uh, climate-related di disclosures and sustainability-related disclosures. Uh, we're going to have the CEO of the Value Reporting Foundation, uh, Janine Guillot, to talk about, you know, the sustainability accounting standard setting process. And we're going to have people from the investment community, including the head of index and ESG research from Bloomberg um, and the global head of ESG and sustainable investing uh, from State Street Global Advisors, to, to, together with a senior columnist uh, from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the, the, the set of panelists is not complete yet. We're getting closer, but the conference is happening June 1st. And uh, I would encourage uh, as many people to join as possible. I'm organizing this conference through our Center for Financial Reporting and Management, which is one of the centers at Berkeley has. And, and I think it's, it's going to be very time. I mean, actually, the timing couldn't be better, to be honest with you. So I'm pretty excited about it. So to end our conversation, which has been fascinating, and yeah, it has brought back like so many good memories from our class. I want to know, like, what do you hope how students will take away from not only your course, but like from taking classes that are kind of like fundamental business that are including sustainability and sustainable components into the discussion? So when it comes to ESG-related issues and more broadly sustainability-related issues, I'm thinking of our portfolio of core classes and elective classes. I, I know now the emphasis is on kind of infusing more sustainability into the core curriculum. But I think, you know, we need to broaden the scope and think about kind of the entire curriculum and how we can infuse cutting edge resource, you know, and topics that are relevant right now to our community. And, and sustainability is one of those issues throughout the entire curriculum. Uh, so first of all, you know, I feel like, you know, kind of the distinction perhaps between core and electives is a little bit artificial. 
uh, because at the end of the day, you know, all MBA students may not go through the same electives, but will definitely will take some elective classes. So I feel like, you know, that distinction uh, probably shouldn't be there. But what I really hope our students to get is, is I want them to get everything. I want them to get a kind of a holistic perspective uh, uh, on everything. I, I want them to get kind of the traditional, you know, core accounting and finance and operations and micro, all, you know, a very, very strong foundation. And then on top of that, exposure to things that are ha currently happening so that by the time they graduate, they have the, the foundation, but also they have the acumen to become effective communicators and leaders in fields that are growing, right? And of course, sustainability is one of those domains that is currently the top of the nation and is likely to continue to be the top of the nation for the years to come, given how central the issues uh, are to our existence, right? So, I mean, going back to your question, what do I want our students to get? I want them to get everything. Uh, I want them to get the foundation. I want them to get everything that is currently uh, trending and growing and is timely and relevant so that by the time they graduate, they're effective leaders. So going back to my class, and again, that's my own biased perspective because I pretty much see everything through the lenses of financial information analysis. I want them to be able to sort of crunch financial data, right, and make decisions, but I want them to be able to overlay, you know, other sorts of data to make even, you know, more informed decisions, right? So even in our class, we saw how we can use traditional accounting data with information about sustainability investments, with information from ESG rating agencies, and kind of create a bigger vector of dimensions through which we can sort of make decisions. So I feel like, you know, that's, that's my perspective. Um, hopefully that covers your question. <laughs> Definitely does. Thank you so much, partners, for, for coming and talking to us and for giving us the opportunity to learn in class, like for myself, learn and discuss and be, have open conversations about like what this topic means for accounting, for finance and how we can make decisions. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, definitely. And uh, my students have been a source of inspiration. And it was you, my students, pushing me to learn more about those topics and be able to form an opinion. So Adriana and Olivia, thank you very much for leading this. And uh, Adriana, I'll see you in class. Definitely. Unfortunately, our time with these transformational professors has come to an end. We got great insights from Professor David Rocklin about how we can transform organizations using design that includes technology for good. We also learned from Professor Panos Patatokas about how core courses like accounting and finance can make a difference in the way we become strong leaders. Thank you so much for tuning into our third episode of Jesus Sustainability at Haas miniseries. We have more to share with you, so do not forget to join us in the following episodes where we will be talking to alumni and career perspectives in the sustainability space here at Haas. See you next time.